It's wind, and it's, it's a sad story in June. That's right. It's on the screen. So, what I'd like to do today is I'd like to share with you the sad story of Judas, and primarily what I'd like to do is I'd like to tell you why it's a sad story. It's a sad story for the reason that you think it is, but there's also another reason I think it's a very sad story. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to just share with you the story uh, relatively quickly. I know that most of us uh, have grown up in church for a long time, and so you're familiar with Judas' story. But just in case you're checking things out and you're new to Christianity, uh, you might feel a little bit lost because we're jumping in towards the end of the story. And so I just want to tell you a little bit about Ju who Judas is. I want to make some observations and then I'm going to tell you about why it's a sad story. So let's start off by a word of prayer. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that you are good and kind to us. Thank you for forgiving us. And so as we come nearer and nearer to the cross, may we be reminded of the grace and the love and the mercy that you poured out on Calvary for us. Yes. And may us not ever grow apathetic to that, but be ever grateful day in and day out. And the whole church said, Amen. Alright, so just a little bit of background about Judas. Uh, if you're new to Christianity, who's Judas and, and, and what is he? Why is he so important in the story? Well, and Ju Judas uh, is one of the twelve. So Jesus had twelve disciples, and he actually had 72, 12, and 3. And Judas was part of the inner 12 disciples that Jesus taught and uh, were part of his ministry and hung out. And uh, was, he, was, he was there for the whole thing. He got to see Jesus' ministry from, from relatively the start to, to, the, to the end, actually. Uh, what's also important that you understand is that, uh, that might, you might not know about this is that Jesus considered Judas a friend. Okay? Matthew 26, verse 50. I'm going to share that story later, but basically, uh, uh, basically what happens is at the moment Judas betrays him, Jesus says, friend, do what you have said to do. So there's this kind of relationship there where Ju Jesus considers Judas a friend. And just John uh, 12, verse 6 also tells us that John, Judas was in charge of the money. He had Dallas's job. But, unlike, Jal unlike Dallas, Judas was a thief. Because here's what we say in John 12, 16. It says this. Judas, who being in charge of the money bag, used to help himself to whatever was put into it. That's a key part of Judas's life. Okay? I'm going to circle back to it, but I think you need to circle out and understand that money is a big thing for Judas. So that's sort of the background of who Judas is. He's one of the twelve... Jesus considers him a friend. He's the treasurer, if you will. He's dolling out the money. He's doing the receipts. He's, you know, all that kind of thing. All the while, he's helping himself into the church tithing money, if you will, and taking money for himself. So he's not quite there, but in, during the entire time of Jesus' ministry, that's what was happening. So then what winds up happening is we get to the last Wednesday before the cross. And in this story, just before this story happens, Jesus is anointed by the woman of Bethany. You remember that story? Is, is, uh, Jesus is at the table in Bethany, and a woman comes in and breaks a bottle of perfume, 
And one of the disciples says, why did you break such an expensive bottle of perfume? It could have been used to help the poor. Guess who? Which disciple was that? Judas. Judas, right? And of course, Judas had no interest in helping the poor. He was just like, oh man, I could have gotten more money. So what winds up happening in the story is shortly after that, he runs in and he decides to go to the Pharisees and the religious leaders and betray Jesus. And in our text today, he kind of said, he starts off by saying this in Matthew 26, verse 15. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And you'll notice that throughout this, the, one of the story, I'm going to highlight certain parts of the text. And if you feel comfortable uh, highlighting your own Bible, I'd like you to highlight that. That phrase, what will you give me? Okay. And so going on from there, they said that they would pay him 30 pieces of silver in order to trade Jesus in. And from that point on, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. So there's that money aspect again. What's sort of interesting, and I want to take a little bit dive about this, is that Matthew kind of leaves this point out, but Luke actually tells us that at this point, Satan enters into Judas. It says this in Luke 22, verse 3 and 4, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers about who made he betrayed him. And so what I want to point out of that is there, there is a deep spiritual component to Judas's betrayal. Satan himself was influenced in do, doing this. And I just want to make sure that you understand very clearly what is going on. It's not like Satan came out of nowhere in Joseph's in, in Judas's life and took him over and possessed him like a bad horror movie. And all of a sudden, Joseph, J Judas couldn't think. He didn't have any free will anymore. And he, and he started growing around with his head spinning. That's, that's not what happens. That's the way that you and I think about demon possession. But in Judas's case, what wound up happening, it was the everyday small decisions that he made that gave, the, gave Satan an opportunity to influence his life. And so going forward, what winds up happening is that Jesus calls out the betrayer. So it's now Thursday, and Jesus is having one last meal with everyone uh, we talked about this in Sunday school a little bit about the Lord's Supper communion and the Papa Show talked about it. Is, is This is where the Lord's Supper is instituted. He's having one last meal, the Passover meal with his disciples. And to give you an idea, to kind of set, set, set the atmosphere a little bit, it wouldn't be like that painting that you see, like the Lord's Supper, the famous one. It would have been like a, a, like a couch or a pillow that was U-shaped kind of. And they would have all been kneeling down, knees to the front, forward, toes to the back kind of thing. And they're all reclining. And it kind of it kind of gives you the picture of a sunken living room almost. And they're having the last meal there kind of deal. And then I don't know what, what the mood is. Uh, I gather it's kind of solemn. Maybe it wasn't. But, you know, at, what, at, at some point, if it wasn't serious, Jesus makes it serious. Because in Matthew 26, verses 18 and 20, it says, My time is at hand. This is Jesus talking. 
and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed, and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And they were eating, and, they, and then Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were all sorrowful, and they began to ask, ask him one after another, Is it I, Lord? I'd like you to highlight that. Is it I, Lord? And what is it goes on to say? Oh man. Oh, it doesn't. Oh, I missed the verse. <laughs> but it goes on to say that uh, Judas. Now Judas had come and he had. He got to Judas and Judas actually said, "Is it not I, Lord?" And he said, "Is it I, Rabbi?" Okay. And then Jesus comes out and he calls out and he says, "It is you." And then Judas leaves to go get the really the guard. Later on, if you know the crucifixion story, you know what winds up happening is that Jesus finishes his last meal. They, has, they do a hymn and a song together. And then they go to Jesus' uh, spot, the Garden of Gethsemane, and which we will talk about next week. And then what winds up happening is Jesus prays. He spends some time in prayer before God before he goes to the cross. And the disciples are there watching him. And then Judas, he knows the spot. And it's dark out, it's, and, he, and he's like, okay, the one that I kiss is the one that is the man, sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once, and he says, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And there's that famous line again in Matthew 26, verse 15, it says this, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit, like, I'm, I'm very, 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 very upset at Judas when I read the story at this point. But there's this fleshly part of me that is also a little bit annoyed at Jesus. And I know that, you know, I'm not annoyed at him, but I'm just like, why are you calling this guy your friend? Right? I don't understand. Uh, I'm mad. He embodies everything that is wrong with a human being. I mean, Jesus, there's something that goes on in my heart when I read this where he says, Jesus, what's your problem? Why don't you stand up? Why don't you call him an enemy? Because he is. He's about to betray you. Why is he continually letting this guy get close to him? Why are you calling him a friend? Why are you letting him into your inner circle? Why are you giving him? Why are you doing this? And I don't really understand this because... You and I have to, you have to sit back and realize that what is happening here. Judas is about to betray Jesus to the Roman guard, and they are about to crucify him. One of the most brutal and gross and barbaric and disgusting ways to die ever. It took usually days for a person to die at the cross. Okay? And here's Jesus, and he is about to be handed over to get crucified. And the way that they brutally treat Jesus, the whipping, the crown of thorns, the humiliation, makes it so that Jesus dies within the day. They treated him brutally, and Jesus knows this, and his answer and his response to the guy that's solely responsible for handing him over is, friends. I don't know about you, 
But I can't say that with integrity unless I've already come to the point where I've worked out the forgiveness angle with him. Just a thought. Well, the story goes on, as you know. Jesus is brought through his three-stage trial. He's brought through the Sanhedrin, then to Pilate, then to Herod, back to Pilate again. Pilate tries his best not to uh, crucify Jesus. He winds up exchanging Barabbas for Jesus, and they haul Jesus off to the cross to be crucified. When that happens, something interesting happens with Judas. We find in 27.3, this is what happens. When Judas' betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 purses of silver to the priests and the elders. Saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And here's, here's the response that the pastor has given. Imagine, imagine I gave you this response, okay? Like, you sinned, you did something wrong, you feel guilty about it, whatever it is. And you come up to me, you say, Dad, Pastor Dan, I've sinned. And I said, that's not my problem, you figure it out. <laughs> And that wouldn't be a very good pastor, and that's what happens with these guys. That's exactly what they say. They say, what is that to us? Deal with you yourself. So Judas is now in a place where he has this guilt. He's, he's, he's this overwhelming sense of guilt. And I would venture to say that most of us, if not none of us, have ever experienced a guilt like that. Because, he gets, because in the end, the guilt overwhelms him, and he can't take the guilt, he can't take the shame... He can't deal with any of that. And so what he winds up doing is that he throws this piece of silver into the temple, he departs, and he hangs himself. Acts gives us a little bit of a more picture when it says that when he, fell, when he hanged himself, eventually he fell headlong, and he burst open in the middle of the ground, and all his bowels gushed open. That's gross. But it's there to point out the stench of death, and just how serious this was for Judas. Judas couldn't handle the guilt. Let me make, and that is the sad story of Judas, in a nutshell. Let me make a few observations, and then I'll show you how this applies to you. And the first observation I would make is that Judas was a little crazy over money. Am I right on that? Yeah. Of course I am. He loved money. He was, it's almost like, it's almost like you get the picture that he's salivating over it. Like it's a, like, like he, like he can't not think about money all the time. Right? That he's obsessed with it, he's driven by it, money is in his veins. It's like a, he's a drug addict, but instead of having like hard drug like heroin or anything like that, it's, it's, it's money. Money is the thing that he salivates over, that he's crazy over, that he's addicted to, he just can't get enough of it. I mean, how bad do you have to be in order to steal from the church? Like, how much, how much does greed factor into that when you have to steal from the offering plate? Okay? This guy was crazy, which brings to the question that I've always wondered is, why would Jesus put Judas in charge of the money if he knew that Judas loved money more. Have you ever wondered that? How many of you are just like, why is this guy in charge of the money? Okay. You know what I think is happening? 
is I think that Jesus wanted to place Judas in tension for about three years. And he said, and he's actually, I said, remember that I think that Judah, Jesus considers Judas a friend, that he loves him, that he wants to disciple him, he wants to see him set free. And so here's what Jesus does. He says, all right, you love money? I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you the money. Boom, you're in charge of the money. Boom, okay? But I'm also going to be right there beside you every step of the way. And you have a choice. Like, you can have the money or you can have me. And for three years, he's in this tension. Okay. Who do I love more? Because here's what I've learned is, is that if you have a sin in your life, if you have something in your life as, as, as habitual as this, this uncontrollable greed, the, the way that you get rid of it is you just don't say, man, I've got to stop being greedy, or I've got to stop being jealous, or I've got to stop being prideful, or whatever it is. No, what... If you want to get rid of a sin in your life, what you actually have to do is you have to replace it with something that you love more. So, for example, I had a friend uh, in high school who just loved smoking, right? Just loved smoking cigarettes, all that kind of thing. And then one day, he met a really, really godly girl, right? And she was awesome. She loved the Lord, and he liked, he liked her. And he, she went to him and said, listen, I like you, but I can't be a, around a guy that smokes cigarettes all the time. And guess what happened to the cigarettes? They went away because he liked the girl more. And that's exactly what is going on here. Is that, and that's exactly why Jesus says you have to love the Lord God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. Okay? Because if you don't love me more than these things... What is going to happen is you're just going to stay stuck with this, right? You've got to love something else more. And that is what's happening with Judas. Is God is placing, this is my take on it, God is placing him in a spot where he can have the thing that he really, really wants, or that he can have Jesus, okay? Well, we all know how the story goes, don't we? Right? Is that in the story... Jesus, Judas didn't think that Jesus was better than money. How do I know that? Simply because of the way that Jesus, uh, or Judas answered Jesus at the, 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 at the betrayal of the Lord's Supper. Every one of the disciples, you know, Jesus comes along and he said, I tell you the truth, someone is going to betray me. And every single one of them goes down in life. Says, is it I, Lord? 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 Every single one of them. Okay? And just in case you're wondering what the Lord, word Lord means, because it's not necessarily a word that we use uh, outside of church, but in church, Lord is one with absolute and indisputable rights and authority over ownership and control of another. Okay? That's what the word Lord means. So they're all saying that they've all recognized that Jesus has this place in their life. What do you think Judas says? He says, is it I, Rabbi? Judas never transitioned from Rabbi to Lord with Jesus. He hung out with Jesus for three years and he never moved beyond rabbi for him. And I would actually say that, 
you know, there might be one or two of you here today where that's true of you. Because here's what I would say. If you are going to make Jesus Lord of your life, you must think that he's better than anything else. You must say that, you must get to the point where you say, I treasure this more. I love this more. That at the core of your being, that Jesus is more, he's better, and I treasure him, and I love him more than anything else. Because what winds up happening is, unless you and I believe that at the core of who we are, Satan will use it as a wedge issue, just like he did uh, with Judas. Okay? And if you don't get to the point where Jesus is everything, where he's better, where he's Lord, and not just rabbi, then what winds up happening is that you and I wake up every morning and we are tempted with the same kind of thing that Judas is, which is that we are all capable of trading in Jesus for something quote-unquote better, or what we think is better. We are all capable of asking this question, is that what will you give me if I trade Jesus in? Jesus, and so that is, and so we are very, very capable. We can all do that. Every day that you and I get up, the world offers us, maybe it's not money, it's pleasure or relationship or meaning or whatever. And we're all tempted at some level, to ask the world, what will you give me if I trade them in? But the truth of the matter is, is unless you make Jesus the core and center of your life, that he is the prized possession, that he is better by far, anything that the world has to offer, this will be a temptation for you, just like it was for Judas. And so what, what I want to find interesting is as we close, those are the observations I'm making. Now here's, here's why it's a sad story. Okay. The obvious reason that Judas' life is a sad story is because he's ultimately the one that betrayed Jesus. Right? If you read through the Gospels, they always make a point of, notice, of noting that, what's his title? Judas the Betrayer. How would you like to be known in history for the rest of the time as that? You know, you want to notice that people in church they love they 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 love to name their kids after certain names or characters in the Bible. You know whose name that I don't see in church a lot is what? Judas. There's a good reason for that, right? But it's not the only reason that the story is sad. I'm going to venture to you that. Judas's story is also sad because Judas never thought that Jesus would forgive him for trading him in. And here's where I think the bar applies to you and mine. If you're looking for, hey, where's this, this coming for you and me? I believe that some of us here feel this overwhelming guilt for trading Jesus in for something quote-unquote better. You know what I'm talking about. I don't know what it is, but you've, you've, walked, you've heard the message of Jesus Christ. You've been walking with him. You've been in church. You've heard all the stories growing up. And at some point along the line, you said, you know what? The world has something better. The, you know, I, And Jesus, he's not doing it for me. So I'm going to actually 
trade him in and I'm going to get something better for Jesus. And you're asking that question, what will you give me? And you've actually taken it and you've embraced the word. And it's somewhere point the line that you have come to the same place of Judas where you realize that it was a mistake. And there's this overwhelming sense of guilt. And you think that your sin is too big for Jesus to forgive. And you, and you, you might not feel guilty enough to end your life over it, but you walk around as if you're dead. And the stench of death follows you into your relationships and your family and your friends and your school. You're just so overwhelmed with the guilt. And you can't bring yourself to accept the notion that maybe Jesus will forgive you. You can't forgive yourself, or maybe a better way to say that is you can't accept the fact that maybe Jesus will forgive you. And you try to deal with the guilt the same way that Judas did. Is you try to pay it back. And you kind of realize that when it doesn't work, you are held captive by shame and guilt. Virtually, you are imprisoned every day by it. You somehow believe that you are worse than other people. Jesus forgives other people. He won't forgive me for trading him in like this. Some of you go around as if you were wearing a big S on your, on your jacket that stands for the shame that you feel. Maybe you're a rescuer, an abler, and you feel ashamed for needing to cover for your kids to the point where they've never learned to take responsibility for themselves. Maybe some of us have terminated a pregnancy, and it feels so big that some of us can't even say the word alone like get without the stigma it brings. And it gets worse and bigger around Mother's Day, or when a friend has a baby and you feel forced to consider what might have been. This, you may believe, might be held, must be hidden at all costs. Maybe some of you have felt the sting of losing a job. You failed at your job in some way at the workplace, and you've done something you know you shouldn't have. So you go in for the interview at the new job, and you suddenly have your... You're suddenly wearing a big F for fired. After all, it's going to appear on your reference check, isn't it? It's so obvious you're sure that the one interviewing can see, see your failures so clearly. They've been fired. What should I do with them? And you've been actually, you wear shame every day. Can I say something to you? Shame is an, is an emotion you feel with, you feel with un, with un, that it comes from undealt with guilt. And if I could throw an idea through you, it'd be that the reason that you are having such an overwhelming sense of shame in your life is because you've never really opened yourself up to be forgiven. At least maybe that specific issue. You're staying in the place of Judas. And you know what the beautiful thing is that I want to say to you today? Is that I believe with all my heart that Jesus will forgive you for trading your man. And I think that is so important when we think about the story going forward. 
You might be thinking, what I've done is so bad, and Jesus goes, I can forgive you, even if you betrayed, I will die for that. I think that's why he's able to call Jesus his friend. And I think that's why on the cross, as he's sitting there, well, he's not, he's, he's hanging there, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Okay. I think this is very important, because undoubted guilt leads to even more serious emotional scars, like shame and bitterness, despair and aloneness. I want to let you know something. The intention from the start, from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, was for you and I to live a life without any sense of guilt. It is not God's will that you live in guilt, shame and bondage, addiction or defeat. He will let you but that's not his will for you. And because it's not God's not will for you, I know that healing is possible. The great news of Jesus on the cross is that your worst sin, that you hide in that closet, that you will take to you to your grave, is forgiven and nailed there with Jesus Christ. Can I say an amen to that, please? Now you might be asking, how do I know that Jesus would, would have forgiven him for that? Simply this is that Jesus wasn't the only apostle to betray Jesus. Right? Judas wasn't the only possible apostle that had demonic influence. It says this uh, in Matthew 16, 23. Jesus has just told his disciples that he's going to die on the cross. And Peter says this. Uh, this won't happen to you. And Jesus turns to him and said... Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of men. Judas wasn't the only one that said he would never betray Jesus. You know in the story of the Last Supper, Jesus says, everyone will betray you, and what does Peter say? Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples which I'm assuming would have included Judas, said the same thing. Judas wasn't the only one that actually betrayed Jesus. You know the story that Peter is hanging out by the campfires and he denies Jesus three times. And here's where things get really interesting. Judas wasn't the only one that felt a deep sense of guilt over it. It says this, is that Matthew 26, verse 75, after Peter has uh, renounced or denied Jesus, it says this, Peter, remember the sayings of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went away and wept bitterly. So you have these two men, two men, both, both are tempted by Satan, both say that they will never betray Jesus, that they'll stand by him no matter what, both in their own way, betray and turn him in. Judas, Judas actually physically turns him in. Peter says, I don't know him. Both feel guilty over it, but there's a difference. Peter deals with it differently, doesn't he? As you recall in the story, after Jesus is crucified and he rises from the dead, the disciples decide that they would take a fishing trip. You guys remember the story? So they're out fishing. And there's this stranger on the shoreline. 
And he yells out, hey guys, do you have any fish? And the guy's going, oh, we can't, we can't find any fish. Try the other side of the boat. Well, they're thrown on the other side of the boat. All the fish come in. And then John says, hey, I think that guy is Jesus. What does Peter do? This is so cool. This is what Peter does. Peter's like, what? Is that Jesus? And so he grabs his cloak, he throws it right on, and he jumps out of the boat and runs to Jesus. And they have a meal, and you know how the story goes, is that Peter, Jesus reinstates Peter. They deal with the betrayal. They deal with the sin. And so here's what I think is really, really cool, is that in, they both had a sin. They both traded Jesus in for something better. Judas for money, Peter for security and not getting arrested. And they're both feeling guilty over it. And then Peter, what does he do? He runs towards Jesus. Judas ran away from Jesus. I really think that if you're here today and you have something that you have an overwhelming guilt for, I will believe that Jesus will forgive you for trading in you. But you've got to run. You've got to, you can't run away from him. You've got to run towards him. I'd say some of you are here today, and, and um, I think you've been running away from God. You feel this guilt. You feel the shame. You've traded in. There's something in you that says, I can't be forgiven. The sin that I did was too big. And you're making the same mistake that Judas is, is that is, is that you're running away from, from Jesus. Instead, I would invite you to run towards Jesus. Like, he forgives you. The whole series of, I'm trying to get you to see that Jesus is better. And in this case, I want you to see that following Jesus going towards Jesus, kind of confessing and having that uncomfortable moment with Jesus where you've said, I've sinned, and he says, I forgive you, and there's freedom, and there's all that guilt and all that shame is washed away by the blood of the cross, is miles and miles and miles and miles better than walking through your life feeling guilty for something that you did that you could never repay for. That is the message of the cross. Amen?